In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Fulton County prosecutors get one step closer to Donald Trump's inner circle. Welcome to Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If you're listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, Patricia, this was a bombshell that broke as I was driving to Charleston for a little uh, remote vacation, remote working experience, I guess you could call it, (laughs) with my kids and my mom. And Patricia, I know you were all over it once you saw the news that our colleague Tamar Hallerman broke and that national outlets soon followed, which is Fulton Carney's special grand jury investigating Georgia's 2020 elections has subpoenaed key members of Donald Trump's legal team, including Rudy Giuliani and others close, John Eastman, Cleveland Mitchell, Kenneth Cheeseborough, Jenna Ellis. Each of them advised Trump on strategies to overturn Joe Biden's wins in Georgia and other swing states. And each of them, or several of them at least, were also involved in this sham elector plot that we've talked about so much. That's exactly right. And this is just huge news because, first of all, these are the people who were closest to Donald Trump during that entire effort that he had to overturn Georgia's election results and push his conspiracies onto not just Georgia voters, but also Georgia lawmakers. And so Rudy Giuliani, I think, is the one who will be most interesting to the grand jury if he comes and answers their questions. Because a little-known fact about Georgia legislative hearings, witnesses are not sworn in they do not have to tell the truth in hearings. And so there was no requirement there to stick to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that is exactly what played out over the next seven hours in that Senate hearing. And then there was another multi-multi-hour House hearing. And this was from Rudy Giuliani taking the lead. And during those hearings, these were the times when Giuliani was pushing all manner of election fraud lies that Donald Trump would bring up again and again, especially in his call with Brad Raffensperger. But what Giuliani was saying in that hearing was pushing state senators, and it was Democrats and Republicans, talking about the dead people who voted in Georgia. There were actually two. He was pushing a story that there are tens of thousands, that felons had voted in Georgia, that people with out-of-state addresses had been illegally allowed to vote in Georgia, that the voting machines could not be trusted. Because of the testimony that Giuliani delivered, he had his law license suspended in New York, and New York talked about the Georgia testimony and said that he had delivered 
deliberately false and misleading statements in that capacity. And so as a lawyer, they said, you, you're not even a lawyer anymore because of what you did down there. So now he's going to be brought in front of a grand jury, sworn in to testify under oath and talk about that and the entire plan that he and his fellow Trump attorneys had, and all of whom have been subpoenaed as well. And here's a little bit of that testimony in front of the special uh, legislative committees in Georgia. When you look at that rejection rate, and when you look at what you saw on the video, which to me was a smoking gun, powerful smoking gun, well, I don't, don't have to be a genius to figure out what happened. And I, I don't have to be a genius to figure out that those votes are not legitimate votes. You don't put legitimate votes under a table. No. <laughs> Wait until you throw the opposition out and in the middle of the night count them. We would have to be fools to think that. So uh, no, no need to push it any further, but there's more than ample evidence to conclude that this election was a sham. And Patricia, really kind of at the heart of this too, was lies about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss that were, not only were they debunked at the January 6th hearing, where we heard emotional testimony from both those women about the aftermath of the impact on those lies, but they were debunked by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger within really within minutes of Rudy Giuliani talking about a purported USB drive full of, of fake votes, all these lies um, that have huge consequences. And, and essentially, as Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman testified, ruined their lives and ended up being a ginger mint that they were passing back and forth to each other, not uh, you know some illegal USB drive. We don't know exactly what the grand jury will be asking or what questions they're allowed to ask. But if this moves forward, I'm sure that the State Farm alleged conspiracy and his role in purporting, promoting, and amplifying that false, you know, dangerous falsehood will be really front and center. Yeah. And Rudy Giuliani, unlike a lot of other people that we've heard from, again, if he does testify and answer these questions, he was working directly with Donald Trump. He knew Donald Trump's state of mind. Now, also, people have testified that Rudy Giuliani's own state of mind was not 100% during this time either. But the grand jury will get to hear that. Um, he also, it's, it's so important, I think, to remember that during those hearings, those were broadcast live on multiple like conservative outlets like Newsmax and OANN. And Donald Trump was watching those hearings as well. So this is where he was talking about Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman. He was saying that they were pulling out suitcases full of illegal ballots. In fact, these were ballot boxes full of legal ballots. Um, but all of that was broadcast and Donald Trump was watching it. And then in Donald Trump's call to Raffensperger, you hear him repeating Giuliani's almost word for word testimony back to Raffensperger and saying, what about all those illegal ballots from the suitcases? And so despite the fact that Raffensperger debunked that almost immediately, you know, there's that saying that the uh, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth puts on its pants. You know, it's almost impossible to put that back in the tube once it's out there. And these, it was just so audacious and so unbelievable that sometimes that feels the most believable to some people, especially Donald Trump's followers. But there are consequences to those actions and not only the effect on those two women's lives, as you said, Greg, but also when there's grand jury testimony, you have to tell the truth. You have to say what you said that was wrong why you said it, who told you to say it. So this could be very, very illuminating in a um, in a criminal setting if that's what he chooses to do, again, if he does come to Georgia and answer those questions. 
Yeah, look, this is just the first step in a really complex process if Rudy Giuliani or any of these other Trump allies want to fight it. Because first of all, some of the attorneys could try to claim attorney-client privilege. Second of all, the process involves not only uh, getting the judge to sign off on this, this attempt to compel testimony, which has happened in Georgia, but also it now goes to a prosecutor in their home district, right? And wherever they live, and some of them live in New York and elsewhere. And then each of these potential witnesses are entitled to their own hearing. And they could make the case that the testimony is available elsewhere or that it would do an undue hardship. So there's there's ways they could fight it. And look, this is happening in Georgia. And frankly, Patricia, this is happening in Georgia with people I wouldn't expect trying to fight. We've already seen a number of Democrats, of course, but also Republicans testify. Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, Gabe Sterling, one of his top deputies, Brian Kemp is testifying by video on July 21st, videotape testimony. But we've seen, surprisingly to me, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, among others, who are fighting the testimony, saying through lawyers that basically this would uh, violate legislative privilege, I guess is the way to put it, but a constitutional protection in the, in the Georgia state constitution that they feel like should shield lawmakers from testifying about what happens during a general assembly session. And as we know, having covered this stuff for a long time, that Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, even though he is a statewide officer and part of the executive branch as well, he also considers himself part of the legislative branch and thereby shielded from open records requests about his email, things like that, as well as in this case, he feels like he's shielded from having to testify. I, I, when I saw Jeff Duncan's name on the list, I'm like, really? I had to read that of a couple people. times. I, <laughs> I had to read that a couple of times. Also, because he's been so unbelievably critical of this entire period yes. and so critical of Donald Trump. He may have some other things that he doesn't want to have subject to legislative uh, scrutiny. I have no idea if that's accurate, but sometimes people don't want to establish a president oh. precedent of answering one kind of question, which means they'd have to answer all the other kinds of questions. But for attorney-client privilege, obviously, if an attorney and a client are conspiring to commit a crime, that's not covered by attorney-client yeah. privilege. And that'll be up to the judge in this case to decide. But when you talk about how much is involved here, that's where you start to hear criticisms of the choice to even go down this road by the district attorney's office, because it is going to absorb so many resources lawyers, time, money, uh, money for security. It just is, it is, it feels like it's just gathering so much steam. It really is going to be a full court press just to get through the grand jury process, let alone if it ever came to trial. Yeah, I know this is kind of the heart of the, um, the sort of the debate over this. Cause even, even some, you know, uh, critics of Trump, some top Democrats, they've been making the argument that, Hey, you know, is this the best use? This is the best use of Fonnie Willis's resources is is going after Donald Trump in a case that is, you know, highly unpredictable. <laughs> Despite uh, legal experts will always point out that look, you know, even though you have the infamous conversation with Brad Raffensperger, even though you have all this other evidence, this is not going to be some slam dunk of a case by any means. It literally could be the trial of the century and one that you know has a lasting impact on the 2024 election and, and way beyond. And there are other crimes and there are other investigations ongoing. But also, look, Fonnie Willis has proved to her constituents, to Fulton County, that she can walk and chew gum at the same time because we've seen a major 
series of indictments involving gang criminals or suspected gang members and very high up people in the music industry and and behind all sorts of schemes and plots in Georgia and murders that she's investigating and and has gotten national attention for that as well. So she has been a very busy uh, prosecutor in her first few months in office. Yeah, and that's the kind of prosecutor she promised to be. And I've talked to her about her sort of what she's weighing when she decides whether to bring charges against Donald Trump or whether to even go down this road. She said, it doesn't matter who you are in Fulton County, in front of the law. If you have broken a if you have broken a law or we suspect you may have broken a law and you're in Fulton County and Brad Raffensperger was sitting in Fulton County when he received that phone call, she said, we're going to investigate. And that's part of the integrity of the legal process is having everybody subject to the same laws, uh, no matter who you are. If you are the poorest person, if you're a homeless person, if you're the former president of the United States, if you break a law, there should be consequences. And so that is, but she also says, I don't know that I'm going to bring an indictment. We just have to follow this path where it leads. Yeah. And it has been a quite a twisty journey path now. And, and we'll see if, uh, if any of these characters, and we didn't mention, but also Lindsey Graham, the South Carolina senator, was also subpoenaed. We're not quite sure um, what his response will be yet. He's in a pressure cooker on his own on this issue because on one hand, he wants to show that he's an ally of Donald Trump. On the other hand, he's a public official. So unlike a lot of these other folks that have been subpoenaed, you know, Governor Kempis and, and Secretary of State Rep. Brad Raffensperger, but Lindsey Graham is the first out-of-state public official that we know of who has been subpoenaed. So we'll see how he reacts to this as well, because we knew that the story broke a few days after the leak of the um, of the infamous phone call between Raffensperger and Trump that Lindsey Graham was also involved in pressuring, badgering, intimidating, bullying Brad Raffensperger to find to toss out votes that you know, that, that he, he thought were fraudulent, you know, just toss it. Can you just toss out uh, some votes so that, uh, so that Donald Trump wins? And, you know, not only was that taken poorly by Brad Raffensperger's office and, and Democrats and, and Trump's critics, but also many Republicans, you know, behind the scenes were like, hey, mind your own business, right? Even some Trump supporters were like, why is Lindsey Graham meddling in Georgia's affairs? Well, and I cannot stress how unusual and bizarre it is for people to be calling the Secretary of State after an election. This is this does not happen in real life. Candidates do not call the Secretary of State and talk about the votes. And there's a legal process for that. You file your lawsuits, you register complaints, you go through. Um, it, there's just an entire set of steps that you take if you have a complaint or a question or a disagreement or a challenge to an election and calling the secretary of state on his cell phone is not one of those processes. Um, <laughs> but Lindsey Graham, you know, he does not, he's not going to have that legislative shield to talk about. He is nobody's, he is nobody's lawyer in this capacity. So I don't know exactly what kind of excuse he could use to get out of a grand jury subpoena. I'm not a hundred percent sure that will be illuminating. He's a creative, he's a creative lawmaker. We'll see if he comes up with anything. Um, before we leave this topic, I want to make sure I give a plug to another AJC podcast breakdown, which is the true crime podcast from Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. And this season they are doing the grand jury investigation into Donald Trump and they get into all the nooks and crannies of the case. Who is Bonnie Willis? What's her background? Why is she thinking about doing this? What are the specific charges that could be brought? So um, we were driving back. My husband and I were driving back from North Carolina on a long drive over the weekend, and we binged listen to the first three episodes, and I recommend. 
I do as well. And we have a secret internal Slack channel we call praise. And I wrote a, a note, little note about tomorrow's scoop. And one of our colleagues said, I can't wait for that episode of breakdown. Tomorrow responds. It's already in the works. So get ready to listen Ooh, to that I episode. Love it. Yeah. They're having to do their season as it happens. It's crazy. It's fun. Yeah. It's a unique challenge of the trial of the century. Potentially. We'll see. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we are back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, coming to you live from Charleston, South Carolina for the next few days. And I'm here along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, who is comfortably back in Atlanta. And we are two of the three political insiders at the AJC. And we are also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. That is subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. And Patricia, one of the things that um, we don't want to overlook is that when the calendar turns to July, we always have a sweep of new laws that take effect. And in Georgia, you know, some of the more controversial laws, maybe they're already taking effect or they're going to take effect in December or sorry, January. But that's not to discount the fact that dozens of laws that lawmakers passed earlier this year are taking effect. And we're talking about expanded mental health services. That was Speaker David Ralston's big initiative, teacher pay raise and Medicaid benefits for new mothers are among the uh, the more noteworthy laws that are, that are now in the books. Yep. There are also pay raises for state employees, including mm-hmm. law enforcement officers. There are new rules, those new rules for schools about how they're going to teach about race and other divisive concepts. So that'll be something that, state, that uh, schools are really going to have to wrap their arms around over the summer. I'll be interested to see how they do that. Also, for all Georgians and across the board, tax cut, income tax cut. So that'll be good news to people opening up their tax bill come next May. They'll see a little bit of a difference. And I think it's so interesting because we talked so much about how the bills that Brian Kemp signed earlier this spring set him up for his primary against David Perdue. But a lot of these bills going into effect, he is really leaning on to run against Stacey Abrams as well. And so if you think about the teacher pay raise, we've heard a lot about that raise for uh, law enforcement officers, the tax cut. He had sort of like two buckets of bills that passed, the ones that we knew were going to make conservatives very happy, and then the ones that we knew would really play well in November to a more general election audience. Yeah, we wrote about that in 
Tuesday's jolt. I'm getting my days mixed up because of the 4th of July. Um, and uh, we, we wrote about it, sort of the anything you can do, I can do better trend we're seeing in the governor's race. <laughs> That's, it's called we, politics. <laughs> it's called politics, but it's, it's you know, I it's think so this way. It's so interesting here, though. Yeah, it's really interesting because, yeah. you know, you don't, these are not issues that I would instinctively tie Stacey Abrams to or Brian Kemp. You know, these are sort of Brian Kemp's efforts at a broader base support. You know, this is his sort of general election stuff. He's talking about teacher pay raises. He's not talking as much about guns and abortion. And, you know, frankly, he doesn't want to talk about the Roe v. Wade as he was talking about as little as possible right now. But, you know, she's going to the heart of that with her call for basically double plus the uh, salary hike that Kemp secured for teachers, $5,000. She's now saying she can get $11,000 in her uh, first term without the benefit of working with a Democratic controlled legislature because we know that the legislature is, unless a giant wave that we cannot foresee happens, will still be controlled by the GOP. She's talking about pay raises for law enforcement officials. And every time Governor Kemp announces a one month extension of a sales tax break on gas, she says, hey, I would do it for the whole year. Why isn't he committing to doing it for the whole year? So you're just seeing this sort of one-upsmanship right now on those three issues. I know. I did not expect Stacey Abrams' first approach to be Brian Kemp, but better. Like, Don't yeah. worry, I'm going to be the same, only even better and even more of what he's doing. But she's really... At least on um, these issues, right? Well, not, exactly. Not well, that's, the that's my, issues, the cultural I'm issues. about to finish my sentence, Greg. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, no, exactly. She's. I think it also is a way to send a message to independent, more moderate Democrats, more moderate Republicans to say, listen, this is not going to be wholesale change if I'm the governor. It's I'm not going to flip the script on every single issue. And I'm not going to change the things that you know you like, I know you like, and Brian Kemp knows you like. Those are teacher pay raises. That's the gas tax cut. Those are the police pay raises. Um, those are areas that poll incredibly well across Georgia. Those are just popular issues. And so it's a way to say, I, I am also on board. And by the way, I am even stronger on this. So that's even more reason to vote for me instead. Now, she's very, very different on social issues. I don't think the two could possibly have more different positions on abortion and Roe v. Wade and gun control slash gun safety. So, those, that, you know, that's where the contrasts really come into play. But it's a way for Abrams to say, listen, I everything wouldn't be different under me, just the bad things. That's sort of, in yeah. her opinion. I guess a good way to put it is she's, sort of, she's very, she's liberal, but she's a, a liberal pragmatist. And one of the examples I always comes to mind is that in 2018, she talked a lot about her proposal to uh, to ban certain types of weapons, certain types of guns in Georgia, high capacity guns. And, uh, you know, that wasn't going to ever go anywhere in a Republican controlled legislature anyway. And this year she took that off her list of priorities and she's acknowledging that, hey, you know, I, I know it'll be, <laughs> I know that the time for that push is not right now is the kind of the way she frames it because she doesn't believe, doesn't mean that she, you know, supports those types of weapons, but also knows that, hey, you know, you got, you got to focus on, uh, on somewhat achievable aims. And look, a lot of her priorities are not going to be achievable in a Republican-controlled legislature. But as we've talked about, she does feel like Medicaid expansion, it might be the biggest hurdle, but also the most achievable hurdle, if that makes sense. It's, it'd be a sweeping change uh, in Georgia, but also one that she feels like uh, there's movement in that direction already, and you can continue that. And, and as we just mentioned with new laws, one of these new laws would, would expand Medicaid benefits for new mothers. So we've already seen a willingness from Republican leaders to at least take a step in that direction. 
Yeah, and I had heard even some talk ahead of Brian Kemp's run when he, before he had a challenge from David Perdue, questions even from some Republicans to say, you know, I wonder if Brian Kemp could expand Medicaid even further. I think even Republicans know that there are hundreds of thousands of Georgians left in this pocket where they make too much to be on Medicaid, but not enough to truly afford Obamacare premiums, even if they are subsidized. And so um, that leaves this huge bucket of uninsured people that is very bad for people. It's bad for hospitals. It creates chronic conditions that go untreated. It has sort of this cascade of effects that are also expensive, more expensive in the long run. So it's a policy position um, also that a number of other more conservative uh, states, uh, including in the South, have taken. And so it's, uh, I think that's uh, really the, I think that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that Abrams is pushing that. She also says that that would create uh, tens of thousands of jobs in the medical sector for more nurses, more home health aides. So it would sort of have a, a plus up in addition to the money that would go out the door. Um, there would be many fold that of federal dollars coming in and also the benefit of having those uh, jobs created, especially in the rural areas of our state. So that's her argument. But then I think she has these other items to expand on where she's going. And I think it's interesting you said she didn't bring up sort of the the more expansive concepts of gun safety and changes to that law um, because I think people are exhausted. You know, I think people, when they're considering the numbers of proposals out there and changes being made. And I think focusing a campaign more narrowly is a smart thing for her to be doing right now. Yeah. And we saw um, the very start of her campaign, it was Medicaid expansion was basically her central theme. You know, she talked about other issues, but everything seemed to come back to Medicaid expansion. Now we're in a different phase where she's uh, rolling out policies. You know, she's rolling out ideas. She's also behind the polls. Despite what the Knipiak poll showed, <laughs> every other poll we've seen and every all the internal data and metrics we've heard about and seen them from with our own eyes show that um, she's behind by a few points, you know, single digits, but still behind. And Governor Kemp doesn't feel the same urgency to respond with a slate of his own proposals. He's talked very little about what he would do in a second term. Instead, talked more about his record because he has a record to run on. And Stacey Abrams has a record from the legislature and a record from the private sector and a record from the business world, but not a uh, not a more recent political record to run on. So that's unfolding in a very quick way. And another politician who is somewhat of a blast from the past, but not a, not a distant blast from the past, is Kelly Loeffler. And Patricia, for your most recent column, you sat down and talked with Kelly Loeffler about what she's up to. Let's listen to a snippet. But what I saw, both as a senator and as a candidate, informed my decision to Stanfall. Because first of all, I saw that there was a clear need for uh, continuing to serve Georgia in some capacity. And we had learned so much in our campaign about what was needed to be done in Georgia within the conservative movement to make sure that we could address the challenges we saw in 2020 so that what we ran into never happens again. Uh, Patricia, that was Kelly Leffler talking about her continuing involvement in Georgia politics. Even after her defeat to now Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, she is continuing to stay involved. She started a Greater Georgia group that is looking to expand voter access and, and energize Republican voters. And she's doing, you know, um, mobilization things at grocery stores and gas stations and, you know, kind of direct to voters. And, you know, we can't escape the question, Patricia, is, is she looking at 
something down the road in the near or medium term future in terms of reentering the political arena? Well, I think that other Republicans think she's creating more opportunities for herself than David Perdue did. You know, I went to talk to her because I've been so fascinated that she and David Perdue lost their Senate seats on the exact same day. And Perdue chose to then turn around and do a primary challenge against Brian Kemp, which nobody expected. He did it. It was basically a disaster. He lost by more than 50 points and no one has heard from him <laughs> since then. Like, I've <laughs> just gone total radio silence. Um, Kelly Leffler, on the other hand, lost her Senate seat, took a couple weeks vacation, and then started to just kind of quietly stay super hyper involved. And she has created this parallel organization, this Greater George organization. She said she's spent millions of dollars of her own money to hire staff, do polling, do focus groups, talk to voters, these registration events. It's a huge effort, to be honest with you. She also has remained a high-dollar donor to Donald Trump, to the state Republican Party, to Senate Republicans in Washington. She has simply not left the arena at all. And so I talked to her about that, about why she did that, and sort of what her goals are right now. She's only saying that she was running really between the November election and that runoff that those nine weeks, you know, she said we needed to Mm -hmm. stand up this operation. And we were, she said they were just totally outmanned by Democrats that they had, you know, a hundred field staffers to Democrats, 3000 in some cases Mm -hmm. they were there. And I got, you know, we would, we would all, my doors were knocked on by Democrats over and over and over. And I never saw a Republican in our neighborhood. And so I think everybody's experience was that Democrats really had that field operation. And Stacey Abrams was really the one with Fair Fight to see that, to plan that years in advance, to create this entire concept of registering, mobilizing, and turning out voters. And so Leffler said she wants to do that for Republicans. Um, and so that's that's what she's doing. We'll see what she, uh, we'll see where it goes. Look, we saw Fair Fight start 2000 and Years before Stacey Abrams ran for governor, um, you know, five, six years before Stacey Abrams ran for governor, helped other Democratic candidates and, of course, helped her own campaign. We could be seeing the very same thing with Kelly Leffler. It's a group that's helping, it's pushing, you know, Republican participation, could wind up helping Brian Kemp, could wind up helping Herschel Walker, but also could be Kelly Leffler's, you know, own political apparatus. And it was, look, it was created as a direct counter to Verify, down to the name. Fair yep. fight FF, Greater Georgia GG, right? We won more, one better than you. We went up to, uh, but they have they have a lot of work to do still. But my hunch, and I could be proved wrong, but she's looking at 2026, where she would potentially either challenge John Ossoff, who's up for election then, or I think more likely either uh, run for a uh, governor's seat that could be open because it would be Brian Kemp would be term limited, or she could go head to head with Stacey Abrams. So we'll see. Ooh. I don't know. Do you have different view of that one? No, Patricia, I don't have a different one. I hadn't quite gotten all the way down the next, uh, <laughs> I've not gotten Stacey Abrams into a, a competition, a literal competition against Kelly Leffler. But this is a woman who was obviously still engaged. She did not return to her old work at Bact and ICE. This is her full-time focus, her full-time job. So th- she is in the arena. And Republicans I talked to were thrilled. They're like, hey, listen, Democrats have had billionaires forever. <laughs> it's our turn that we get a billionaire of our own who stays in the state and spends this kind of money. And so she's uh, she's definitely 
again, I just think it's so fascinating the contrast between her and Purdue because Purdue mm-hmm. took a shot at Kemp, catastrophe gone. Leffler has quietly done, frankly, the exact opposite, lifting up other Republicans instead of running against them. And she may be opening more doors for herself in the end. And look, she's speaking to one of her biggest weaknesses, which was she was an unknown to a lot of Republicans, even in Atlanta, when Governor Kemp appointed her to that open U.S. Senate seat back in 2019, seems like an eon ago. And now she's there and she's going to meetings and she's speaking around the state. And we've covered her in various you know, Republican grassroots events over the last few months. So she's been out there and, you know, in, in a sense, rebuilding or connecting with grassroots Republicans she never really had a relationship with, which Doug Collins, her Republican opponent in the 2020 special election, was able to exploit, right? He was able to say, hey, you know me, I've been fighting for you. She's saying all the right things. She's saying all the conservative things. But, you know, is she really a fighter? Is she going to be someone who is as true to the conservative values as Doug Collins is? And that was something that, you know, was able to bite into, he used to bite into early, but of course he wasn't able to defeat her. Patricia, the other big question that she'll continue to face is among the Trump loyalists is that her decision not to block, not to vote to block the Electoral College counting on January, was it January? It was January 6th. Yeah. But really ended up voting in January 7th, right? Wasn't it like early the next morning? Yes. It was a very mm-hmm. over, overnight affair. And, you know, later on, she explained to me and to others that, you know, she felt like it wasn't about her support for Trump. She felt like she was, it was just delaying the inevitable. The Democrats and others had the votes to push forward and she didn't want to make the public go through hours more of that theater. But at the same time, there will be some mount, you know, lingering questions from the diehard Trump folks who thought that that vote was a betrayal. And I wrote in my book, it flipped, that one of Kelly Loeffler's top aides got a text like moments after she decided not to vote to block the Electoral College count saying, Benedict Arnold, you know, they're being treated like betrayers, traitors uh, to the Trump cause. And uh, that's something that she'll have to navigate. But one of her earliest donations in 2021 was to Donald Trump and a whole lot yeah. of money. And I'm sure he noticed. <laughs> to be I'm, sure he noticed. You, I'm sure he noticed. And, um, and she's the so, wealthiest or she was the wealthiest member of, of Congress. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. By far. The top two or three. Yeah. By far. Um, yeah, it, absolutely. I think, um, I don't know that this is her strategy, but it's a lot of Republican strategy. Look, just try and stay in the, stay on the road stay with the patient until the fever breaks, you know, maybe this Trump thing will work itself out. So she has, um, I asked her about the election and she said, well, obviously I conceded my own race two days later, but I know that voters had their doubts. And she talked a lot about election integrity as Republicans like to call it. So she's definitely trying to walk this fine line between not jumping down the rabbit hole, but not totally rejecting all of it either. And that's what a lot of Republicans are going to have to do. But for somebody who wants to run statewide, I mean, that's the dance that Brian Kemp is having to have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of Brian Kemp, she did not endorse Brian Kemp for his reelection with David Perdue. She didn't endorse anybody. So she is seeming to try to stay above the fray, whether that burns bridges in the process. You know, we just don't know. But she certainly has lots of resources, lots of energy. And I was also told she goes to a lot of events where she doesn't speak. She yeah. just will sort of pop up at conservative events. She's also seeded an enormous amount of money into anti-abortion groups, has given money to efforts to get out suburban women, Latino voters, just sort of any manner of sort of like the entire buffet of voter turnout efforts and not just her own, which I think is interesting. So it certainly looks like somebody who is on 
who has some kind of campaign going on, not necessarily to get elected this time around, but definitely um, it's the kind of work that you that she would have done ahead of the 2020 election had she had more than two seconds when it was like, oh, there's an opening and now you're a senator. We, that was yeah. basically how it went. And your flight to D.C. is tomorrow and we'll see you in two years. You know, right. good luck. <laughs> She didn't have to worry too much about the flight to DC part though, because she has her own private jet. Your flight, by the way, is your is your plane. (laughs) Yeah, your flight is ready whenever you want it. But I'm really fascinated too with the ongoing dynamic with with Kemp because Ryan Kemp, of course, pointed her and really thought of her as a running mate in a sense. You know, thought that she would obviously thought believed she would win in 2020, and that in 2022, when she would be up for a full term, a full six year term, and he was going to be up for re-election, they would run together. You know, he had this unique opportunity to, to appoint his, basically his own running mate, his handpicked running mate. And uh, so they were very close and and she even started a, uh, or her allies even started a um, an outside group with the initials Gov, I think it was, G-U-V, yeah. mm-hmm. that was uh, looked at as like, hey, this is not only going to help her, but maybe Brian Kemp down the road and all that. And things aren't really that cozy between them right now. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs of that dynamic as well as I want to right now, but, <laughs> but clearly you're right. She didn't endorse him. And, you know, I don't see her at a lot of his events. You know, she's not the introductory speaker at, the, at big rallies or anything like that for Brian Kemp. She hasn't been a mainstay on the campaign trail, but she is clearly still a force in Republican politics and might even be more impactful force than the state GOP is because there's ongoing efforts to sideline the state GOP out of mistrust, out of the fact that they weren't neutral, right? And David Schaefer was not neutral. He was he was openly backing some of the Trump-aligned picks over incumbents. So we could look back in November, December and, and say, okay, the greater Georgia played a bigger role than the state GOP did in these elections. Well, they're certainly investing, I mean, millions of dollars. They've actually made more voter contacts than the state GOP effort that's combined with the RNC. And she also, I think this is interesting, is the biggest donor to the state Senate Republicans Leadership Committee. So she is working on that as well, working to mobilize and turn out voters at the local level for those all important state Senate elections. And so that's another way that I think she is, in some cases, introducing herself to some of these state senators. They will certainly appreciate the support. That's probably something they were hoping they would have gotten in the last election cycle, you know, but better late than never. Uh, Yeah, I just I think she's a kind of a fascinating character to watch. And if people hadn't been watching carefully, they may not have known how very deeply involved she still is in Georgia politics. She's getting some important IOUs from some important folks. So yeah, keep in touch. 2026 is a long way away, but might not be too long. (laughs) Before we get out of Patricia, how was your 4th of July? So, So were you on the Peachtree Red Race route? Yes, I was. My twin sister was running. You can see how we are not alike. <laughs> she was running and I was watching. <laughs> I went up to cheer her on and then I went back to sleep. <laughs> if you if you saw a ball of mush slowly plodding by probably in, where was I, in the G wave, H wave? Uh, that was me. <laughs> oh my God, my, it was so hot, Greg. I don't so know how hot. you did it. It was just I was sweating punishing. before. I mean, just, and I've been running for a long, you know, and I, I'm, I'm used to running outside. I'm used to running you know, medium to long distances. But man, I mean, my hat was already sweated through before I even started. I said, this is going to be a problem. 
this is going to be yeah, trouble. It was a problem. That's all yeah. I can say. It was a problem. There were tons of politicos. Raphael Warnock was out there. The mayor was out there. Did you see that the mayor's time was like thirty-two an elite minutes? Someone time yeah. because apparently he got a ride from the starting line yes. to the finish line because he's yes. broken his foot, but his bib. Um, it was, was timed anyway, so he was like right up there with the top two finishers. So he'll be in the sub-seed next yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Congratulations, you're in the Olympics. We still don't know how that worked out <laughs> because I've been in A or B wave or C wave for a long time. This year I was in H and I had a great, last year was like my best time ever. I mean, for me, it was great, right? I was in 50-something, I was low 50s. Um, for elite runners, it's not that great. But for me, I was I was very happy with with my pace. And that yet this year I was way kind of, you know, in the middle, which is, which was great. I, I ran with a lot of friends, saw a lot of cool people, but my wife was like up in the B's or A's and she finished 30 minutes slower than me last year. So I'm like, what's going on? We have but, always you know, known that Cheryl is the best of the bunch. Yes, I agree. She definitely <laughs> Far, is. Superior um, by all measures. No offense. She is. And we survived. <laughs> and afterwards we, we like sweated our way to Pond City Market where we, uh, we left the trail of sweat for everyone to follow. Oh, how delightful. Thanks for it that delightful. image. Yes, you, you get to keep that. <laughs> the whole place was just like, oh, it was so humid and still is. So folks, drink a lot of water. Exactly. Um, ration your time outdoors. <laughs> That's all for our health <laughs> tips for this That's week's great. edition, the, this day's edition of Portugal, Georgia. I shouldn't say this week because you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and Friday, but also whenever news breaks. That even meant six episodes in one week a few weeks ago. If you haven't already, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcast and leave us a review, especially if you like us. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.